chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. Let's go ahead and remain seated for this reading. It's another long Old Testament reading, but a great story wherein I think we'll see God's grace in a really wonderful way. Uh, this is God's Word, 2 Kings 5, 1 and following. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the little girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near him and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. 
As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Since the reading of God's word, please pray with me. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ in this story of grace to a man who needed it just like we need it this morning. By the power of your Spirit, transform us by that grace into people who know you and love you and follow you more and more each day. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. (coughs) There's a grocery store chain in Texas called HEB. I don't know if you've ever been to an HEB grocery store. Uh, maybe you've heard of it. It's, uh, it's founded, or it's named after the founder's son uh, who took over the chain in 1919, Howard E. Butts. We'll just call him Howard this morning. He was a Christian, and I, and I was impressed by part of a speech that Howard gave in 1963. It's a profound reflection on the nature of pride. Here's what Howard has to say about pride, and I think he's right on the money. He says, it's appealing to me to feel that I am the master of my fate, that I run my own life, call my own shots, go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. Pride, my basic dishonesty. I think that's really good. Let me give you a little more context from this speech called The Art of Being a Big Shot. Howard says, it is my pride that makes me independent of God. I can't go it alone. I have to get help from other people, and I can't ultimately rely on myself. I'm dependent on God for my next breath. It is dishonest of me to pretend that I'm anything but a man, small, weak, and limited. So living independent of God is a self-delusion. It's not just a matter of pride being an unfortunate little trait and humility being an attractive little virtue. It's my inner psychological integrity that's at stake. When I'm conceited, I am lying to myself about what I am. I am pretending to be God and not man. My pride is the idolatrous worship of myself, and that is the national religion of hell. I think that's a powerful statement from this speech. Small, weak, and limited. That scratches us the wrong way, I think, right? It rubs our pride the wrong way because we're too proud to admit that we're small, weak, and limited. It's the basic dishonesty in our hearts. 
And you don't have to be a big shot for this to be a problem for you. From the time we're little kids, right? Maybe you have little kids yourself and you got them ready for church this morning and you tried to buckle them in the car seat and they said, I can do it all by myself, right? I can do it all, my, all by myself. That's a wonderful phase in raising children. But the thing is, it's not just a phase. The I can do it all by myself grows right up along with us. It stays in our hearts. It's that basic dishonesty of our hearts. And I think that this pride that we all face and experience and struggle with is the reason why grace can really get under your skin. Because grace tells you that you're small, weak, and limited. You can't do anything by yourself. You need God's grace. And the story we're going to look at this morning is the story of two men who had radically different responses to God's grace. Two men who were confronted with their own basic dishonesty of pride, with the grace of God, and they responded in two very different ways. It's a story that we all need to hear because our response to God's grace will end in one of the same places as these two men. It will either end in being cleansed and converted like Naaman or condemned and cast out like Gehazi. Our response to God's grace can end in redemption or ruin, cleansing or condemnation, uh, deliverance or disaster. So as we look at this story, consider it as a mirror and see yourself responding to God's grace. Consider how will you respond when grace tells you you're small, weak, and limited and you can't do anything without God's grace. Let's look first at Naaman. We'll spend most of our time here with Naaman. What do we learn from Naaman? The big thing we learn from Naaman is that God's grace disabuses us of any notion that we can contribute to our cleansing. God's grace, simply put, tells you you can't contribute anything to your cleansing and conversion. You must humbly repent and receive God's grace. Right at the beginning, we're cued into Naaman's basic dishonesty of pride. I don't know if you noticed it when we read verse 1. Naaman is what we might call today a champion of war. He's a decorated war hero. He has the king's ear. He's a big shot, to use Howard's speech. He's a celebrated man. He thinks that he has it all and can do it all, but the text slips in this line. It says, By him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Naaman thinks that he won the battle, and we get the divine perspective. By him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. If only we knew that every one of our successes is simply the Lord working out his sovereign plan through us. And in Naaman's case, uh, the Lord had already begun to chip away at his sense of pride and self-sufficiency. He had a very serious problem that would end in disaster. I'm going to read this uh, verse again so that you can feel the weight of it as it reads uh, in the Hebrew because it doesn't come across in English as well. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, great man with his master and in high favor, a mighty man of valor, leper. And it just drops like a bomb at the end of this verse. Leper. We hear that and we think, what what is leprosy again? But a Jewish audience hearing this would say, oh, he's a leper. Uh, It's really a catch-all for many skin diseases, uh, but someone with this kind of illness described as leprosy, uh, something defiguring, debilitating, uh, any Israelite who had this skin disease 
would know that this is, uh, this is a death sentence for them. And more than a death sentence, they would be sent outside the camp where they could not worship the Lord. So you, just as we're all gathered here today worshiping the Lord together, they would not be able to be here sitting next to you. They would not be able to come to the temple where they could worship God. Not only was it a death sentence, it really exiled you. Leprosy would be, a, in essence, excommunication from God's people. No access to the temple, no access to worship. It really represented the curse of sin and death. It's a death sentence, but it's also this cursed, this cursed distance from the God of Israel and from his worship. So Naaman, though he wasn't Jewish, he also would be very concerned by this disease because he's a man of power and prestige and political position. And as he succumbed to leprosy, he would be sent away as an outcast, as someone who could no longer enjoy this privilege that he once experienced. So he has this real problem, doesn't he? But he doesn't yet realize that his problem is more than skin deep. His problem is more than just a skin disease. His problem is that he needs to be cleansed from sin and be converted to the true and living God. Well, we're introduced to another character in these early verses that highlights the foolishness of Naaman's pride. It's this little Israelite girl taken captive on a Syrian raid and given to Naaman's wife. Uh, she's a servant. Here she is, far from home, ripped away from her family, uh, forced into the service of the enemy. And what does she do? She shocks us all, doesn't she? She shows compassion to her captor. She says, would that my master were with the prophet who is in Israel. He could cure him of his leprosy. Naaman doesn't... Uh, receive word from the finest doctor in all the land about how he can be cured from leprosy. He, he, doesn't, uh, none of his, he doesn't hear from anybody but a little servant girl about how to be cleansed. This little servant girl who he has oppressed gives him the answer that he eventually finds in Israel. This little girl plants the seed of hope in her captor's heart about where he could be cleansed and converted. So Naaman decides it's worth a shot. He takes letters from the king of Syria along with loads of money and goods to give in exchange for his cleansing and he goes to Israel. Verse 7 says that the king of Israel reads a letter, he tears his clothes and says, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure him of his leprosy? The king thinks it's all a trick. It's a trap, right? It's subterfuge. It's the king of Syria trying to start something with the king of Israel. And we're sitting here thinking, you're the king of Israel. You should know where to point a man uh, to where he can find cleansing and forgiveness and rescue. Your, your God is the true living God of Israel, but he doesn't get it. You would think he could be the guy who could point that guy to the God who saves, but he doesn't. He sits there and just sees it as a trap. We get so hung up sometimes, I think, of what we can and can't do uh, when we serve a God who can save. The king says, I can't cure this man of his leprosy. Well, you and I can't save anyone either, but we know where to take someone so they can receive salvation and forgiveness and grace. So we ought to see that and say, listen, maybe I can't help you, but I know someone who can help you. So here's the king. His clothes are torn in despair. Conspiracy theories are spinning in his head. And Elisha comes to talk some sense into him. Elisha comes and says, I'll show him that there's a God in this place. Just send him to me. Just send him to me. And it's at this point in the story that under God's sovereign control and because of uh, the faith and compassion of this little servant girl, Naaman, he, he's finally confronted with his desperate need. 
it really bugs Naaman. Just like it really bugs us when we're confronted with the fact that we're small, weak, and helpless. This is one of the big moments in the story we have to pay attention to. Watch what happens to Naaman and ask yourself, how will you respond when you're confronted with God's grace? So here's what happens. Naaman arrives, right? This mighty general of Syria with his whole entourage at Elisha's house. He, he has this basic dishonesty of pride on full display. He's brought everything that he could imagine to buy his cleansing, to purchase what he needed. And of course, he's Naaman, right? Everybody knows Naaman. So he expects uh, this, this grand welcome. And Elisha doesn't even come to the door when he knocks. It's, it's great. He sends his servant. And Naaman's thinking, what in the world? Can you imagine? This is definitely not the reception that he hoped for. The messenger tells Naaman, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. And Naaman's thinking, what? I'm Naaman. And I'm from Syria where there are far better rivers than the River Jordan. What is he talking about? Why would I go wash in the Jordan seven times? This is ridiculous. He says, I thought that he would surely come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Naaman, what was he expecting? He was expecting the Benny Hinn show. He was expecting what every other pagan god did in these pagan cultures. Manipulation and elaborate rituals and somehow this would all conjure up for Naaman this instantaneous healing of his leprosy. That's not the way it works with the one true and living God. God's going to cut through his pride to get to his heart. So Naaman's hot under the collar. He says if water can wash him clean, he's going to pack it back to Syria. There are far better rivers in Syria. And his servants come to him and try to talk some sense into him. They say, and I'm going to read here from the NIV. They say, if, if he had told you to do some hard thing, would you not have done it? If, they, if, if the servant had asked you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? See, that's the sense here. All he's saying is go and wash and be clean. Why wouldn't you do that? Go, wash and be clean. Go dip in that muddy backwater river seven times and be clean. But grace has really gotten under Naaman's skin. He doesn't want to do it. He's proud. He does not want to give in and be humble and receive God's grace. You think we would prefer an easy option over a hard one. That's what the servants are telling Naaman. Why don't you just do it? You think we would appreciate having an easy answer, but we always think there's fine print. We always want to contribute to our conversion and cleansing. We want to be able to do something. We hear the message of grace and it sounds like a pitch. We think, surely there's something that I can do. Uh, that's what the average person thinks Christianity is about. Do better, try harder. And maybe if you're good enough, then you'll make it at the end of the day. Maybe you're here and you wouldn't describe yourself a Christian, but that's what you think Christianity is all about. Many Christians think that's what Christianity is all about. Do good things. Tip the scales in your favor. Uh, be a better person, a better spouse or a parent. Put a bigger bill on the offering plate. Do more uh, service in the community. Sure, grace, yes, but is God really going to ignore my impressive resume? Surely that counts for something? No, it doesn't count for anything. That currency is useless when it comes to receiving grace. God sees that and says, no, you can't hack it. The price is too steep. 
you cannot fulfill my law completely. There is absolutely no way. That's how grace disabuses us of any notion that we can contribute to our cleansing and conversion. Our transactional bent, where we always want to contribute and earn and do and purchase, has to be rewired away from doing to receiving, to receiving God's grace. That's why the servants tell Naaman, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Just go wash in the river. It's that simple. They say, let's be reasonable, friends. Just like the prophet Isaiah. Come, let us reason together. Wash and be clean. That's the message. It's still the message. Wash and be clean. Psalm 51.2 Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Here's the reason, friends. Your works are worthless currency when it comes to receiving God's grace. Absolutely useless. Grace is free to you, but it is more costly than anything you could do or purchase or earn. You can be cleansed from your sins free of charge because someone else has already paid the price. There was a man who needed no cleansing, who himself, the perfect holy son of God, took on flesh and lived among us. And he went and washed in the Jordan River. He dipped himself in the Jordan River. As a general rule, I don't bring up Greek and Hebrew in a sermon, but I will this time because I think it's important to note There's something interesting at this point in the Greek translation of this story that we're reading this morning. You know, you may be reading the ESV or the NIV or the New King James Version. The apostles, as a general rule, were reading something called the Septuagint. That was their Bible that they read. They often quoted in the New Testament, this Greek translation. And this word, when Naaman goes down and is cleansed and he dips himself in the river, the word there is one that I think most will be able to recognize baptizo, especially if you're a Spanish speaker. He was baptized. The word that's used, he was baptized. He was dipped. It's this word connected to cleansing and used here for Naaman going down into the river. Was he dunked? Was it pouring? Was it sprinkling? That's a debate for another time. But what we see here is Naaman going down and he's baptized that day in the river. Not a Christian baptism, but it's pointing forward to something that happens in the future. You fast forward to the New Testament. John the Baptist looks up and he sees the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world coming to him to be baptized. We heard it read this morning. John recognizes he would much rather be baptized by Jesus. He says, why are you asking me to baptize you? He says, we have to do this. This is how we fulfill all righteousness. The spotless Lamb of God was baptized in that muddy river Jordan, not because he needed to be cleansed, but because he was standing with you in your need to be cleansed. He was identifying and taking up the cause of sinners, Syrian sinners back then, sinners here today and now, sinners all around the world, sinners that were standing there on the banks of the Jordan, and sinners that have now come to faith in Christ here today, worshiping God. Jesus took on the cause of sinners by uniting himself with them and said, this is how we fulfill all righteousness. I am going to walk in there myself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Naaman finally consents. He says, okay, I'll do it. He goes down once. He goes down twice, a third time, seven times. He's the poster child, right, of this basic dishonesty of pride. And God is telling him to take off your uniform and to humble yourself and receive grace. 
And we know that he receives grace, and it's more than just his skin is clean, because what, is the, what does it say? It says he, his skin is made clear, and it adds to that, just like the skin of a little baby. This idea of complete regeneration and renewal. He then goes on to confess his faith. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Uh, the church father Ambrose of Milan said in the 4th century, when Naaman was cleansed, he understood that it was not the waters, but of grace that a man is cleansed. He gets it. He wasn't just cleansed by something magical in the Jordan. He was cleansed by the only God who can save. So he says, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He begins to process what his newfound faith will look like when he gets back to Syria. We don't have time to explore all that this morning. He says, I'll take some wheelbarrows of dirt with me and maybe I'll build an altar, but then I might have to go into a temple. And Elisha says, go in peace. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. You're not going to be sanctified in one day. We'll figure it out. Um, really interesting to explore, but the point there being, when God's grace freely offered confronts you in your basic dishonesty of pride, the only answer to that is to humbly repent and receive God's grace. Postscript to this sermon is really point two, so that no one gets afraid that it'll be as long as point one. Uh, Gehazi, what about Gehazi? You can't leave Gehazi out. The story goes through Gehazi. This is a short point, but it's important because this is the warning in this passage for you. What happens when you don't receive grace and instead you go the other direction? That's the big thing we learn from Gehazi, that this pride that we've been talking about is a problem, not just out there with people like a pagan Syrian general. It's a problem within the church, within these four walls, even with people who profess that they believe in Christ, even with people who grew up in the church and would say they're part of the church. There can be a deadly uh, dishonesty of pride in the hearts of people sitting in this room. It's important to hear and observe. Gehazi was God's servant. He was the prophet Elisha's servant. He had seen someone raised from the dead one chapter before ours. He had grown up singing the Psalms. He had prayed the prayers. He was like the front, the front pew church kid, so to speak, but he doesn't get it. A lifelong front row seat to God's grace is no guarantee you can, you can squander that by unbelief. Some people here this morning are more like Naaman. You wouldn't have darkened the door of a church until you were in your 30s or 40s or 50s. I don't know. Uh, and then finally, grace gripped you, and it was a miraculous transformation. And people were shocked and surprised. Some of you had grew up in church. Both of those testimonies are amazing testimonies of God's grace. But we learned from Gehazi that it doesn't matter. You have to respond to grace in belief and not unbelief. We see a couple of things. Despising God's law reveals that we actually despise God's grace. Elisha, I mean Gehazi, he really shows his cards when he chases Naaman down to get something from him. Elisha had refused one final offer of gifts from Naaman. God's grace is free for the receiving by faith. Sure seems like this freeness of grace gets under Gehazi's skin. He says, see, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian, so I'm going to run after him and get something from him. He says, it's just not right. It's not right. He, he's so bothered by this grace, he's sinning all over the place. He covets Naaman's wealth and breaks the Tenth Commandment. He takes God's name in vain and breaks the Fourth Commandment. He makes up a whopper of a story and he breaks the Ninth Commandment. And then when Elisha asks him where he's been, he says, your servant went nowhere. Kids, maybe you can add that one to your arsenal. Mom and dad ask, where, what are you doing? Where, where, where did you go? Your servant went nowhere. 
It sounds, it sounds funny, right, coming from a kid, but it's, it's ridiculous and it's horrifying coming from Gehazi. The sheer beauty of grace should compel us to obey God and to keep his commandments. And Gehazi is so bothered by this grace that he breaks God's commandments left and right and reveals that his heart has never been gripped by grace. Naaman, of course, is like more than willing to oblige. He's like, take it all. That's fine. Take anything you want. I came willing to give everything, and I'm happy to give everything. He's one, someone who gets grace, but Gehazi doesn't get it. He's cursed for it. Our text concludes on a sobering note. Elisha tells Gehazi, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. This is important to hear. If you value grace, if you get grace, if you are living a life of gratitude for that grace, you will never be cast out. It's like Spurgeon said, Christ's work on your behalf is so complete that you not only will be saved, but you are saved, must be saved, and cannot run the risk of being anything but saved, okay? So this is not for you, Christian. But for you who are sitting here who outwardly say, I am going to be part of this thing called the church, but inwardly you are too proud to receive God's grace, this is a warning. This is a warning to receive that grace it's Naaman's leprosy that's given to Gehazi. It's just this sobering thought at the end. It represents sin and death. It represents a life that does not respond to God's grace to receive it and to be saved by that grace. So Naaman humbles himself and he's cleansed and converted. Gehazi, stuck in his pride, is condemned and cast out. Does grace get under your skin? Does it get past the wall of your basic dishonesty of pride? Have you received God's grace and decided there's nothing I can contribute? I'm going to receive God's grace and from that point, I'm going to walk in a new way of life that is enabled by that grace? Or are you still stiff-arming grace and saying, no, I think I will contribute on my own and build up my resume myself? The message remains wonderfully simple. 1 John 1, 9, wash and be clean. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, we write, read a verse full of hope for people like you and me. People like Naaman who are in need of cleansing after this laundry list of sins that would condemn us. Sins that we need cleansing for. Paul makes this wonderful statement. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for cleansing us from sin by pure and undeserved grace. We confess that too often grace gets under our skin as we wrestle with the simplicity and the beauty of its free offer to us. Make us willing to receive your grace with humility. Continue to cleanse us from our sin and deliver us from the basic dishonesty of pride. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.